0: Thank you. Thank you. We're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning, um, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' light of the world. And as uh, Charles said, we're going to be looking through uh, yeah just three weeks on the theme of light of the world. And we're going to be in John chapter 1, which I want to introduce as a passage by saying that this is, this is the passage that was responsible for me, I suppose, having one of three uh, mystical, spiritual, transcendent experiences that I've had in my life when I've been out and about in normal life. I don't know if you have these moments, maybe very occasionally in the Christian life, I've found that I have these moments where I'm not in a worship time or a prayer meeting. I'm not even thinking about the things of Christianity particularly, and I suddenly become overwhelmed with awe about something to do with some of the truths of the faith, some of the realities of Christianity. And I had this I've had it, in a, had it in a storm in the North Sea where it was blowing a gale and the boat was all over the place, and I just was suddenly experienced the wonder of and awe of the power of God. And I had another one when I was in a zoo once, I just suddenly, whoa, over. And I had one in Bethlehem because of this passage we're about to read. Now, obviously, Bethlehem, is, you know, many of us won't have been there. Some of us probably have, and it's a strange place. In my experience, it was a kind of an odd place because. It's a it's a, a sort of fusion of is, is it Israeli? Is it Arab? Is it Christian? Is it Muslim? Is it Jewish? It's a, a sort of interesting cocktail of different things because of where it is. And uh, it's sort of a slightly unusual place anyway. And it's covered in what I regard, and you may differ on, from me on this, what I regarded as just like Taurus tat. There was just a lot of gaudy, golden, encrusted gubbins that i just didn't i don't know it was a bit of a weird place and everything was a shrine to something or a sanctuary of something and there's one place maybe see if you can guess what this is there's a place in bethlehem called the grotto del latte what do you think it is commemorating in the, the history of the christian faith right the grotto del latte i don't know how good your latin and italian are a latte is obviously not the word coffee that's cafe latte so a latte is coffee with milk so the grotto del latte is the milk cave cave of milk. What seminal moment in Christian history is this cave commemorating? Yes, you've guessed it. It is the moment when the breast milk of the Virgin Mary is supposed to have splashed on a stone while she's feeding the baby Jesus. It's it's that kind of place. And so there is this, and me and my friends took photos of ourselves in the Grotto del Latte. Like this is, so when I say full of tats, I mean that kind of thing. I'm sure people with good conscience have gone there and found something meaningful, but I wasn't one of them. So it's that kind of a place. And we'd just done the tour of the Church of the Nativity, and we'd come out and standing in the sunshine. And I was feeling a bit disillusioned by all of the clutter. And then my friend who was with me said, I know we don't know exactly where it was, and we don't know where the shed was or where the manger was or anything else, but somewhere within a few hundred meters of where we're standing now, God became man for the first time. And, I, and he just walked off. And I just I had a spiritual experience. I just was overwhelmed. I remember it so well. this incredible sense of awe and joy and as it happens, the passage of the Bible that I probably know off by heart that 's the longest passage is the one we 're about to read and I just began reciting it where I was, just in the middle of the sunshine, it's like in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I was just No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. I was overwhelmed by the truths that this passage explains, all of which is really just a long introduction to say, this passage is powerful. This is beautiful, rich, deep feast of truth. And so we're just going to read it, maybe slower than we often do, but just trust that God will work through the wonder of the incarnation, God becoming human for us. Here's what John writes. In the beginning was the Word. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Last week I did a question and answer evening with the 20s in the church, mostly 20s, Um, and some of you were there, and there were all kinds of Tough questions being thrown in, following up the series we've just done. So, a number of people asking, you know, some of the big obvious problem questions about the Christian faith. What about suffering and what about slavery and what about all these sorts of questions? And then there was one question which was so, is so hard, I left it to the end. Somebody had just asked, How does the Trinity work? And I thought, You know what? I don't mind. I can do suffering and slavery. Those kinds of questions, I'd talk about those till the cows come home. I don't. I find them. There's there's good. Easy, it's kind of not easy answers, but there's good answers. Good ways of engaging and saying, yeah. Well, we need to think about this and bear that in mind. With the Trinity, you've kind of got to put your hands up and say, there is mystery here, and it may be your question today. If you're here, you may be the person who's going, oh, come on, what are, seriously? What's the deal with the Trinity? You may be not a Christian, and so you may know that this is something Christians believe and think it sounds bizarre or incoherent. Three and in one. What are you talking about? I imagine some in the room for whom that's true. You may come from a Muslim background. I know there's people I've met here from a Muslim background a couple of times, and I just thought, yeah, this is a big question for people from a Muslim background. It was, I spent an evening in Istanbul once talking to new converts to Christianity and some of their still Muslim friends about the Trinity. How do, how do we make sense of it? What does it mean? You might even be a Christian here today and think the Trinity sounds bizarre. You might be a Christian going, yep, yeah, sign me up for that too. I don't understand it either. It's a, a real puzzle. And if you're puzzled by the Trinity, I think John 1 can help you. I think it's one of those passages that has light to shed on the idea of the relationship between Jesus and God the Father and how we say both are God and the Spirit as well. And what, what John does, which is clever, is he takes three things, that we, three things that we know are true of light, just light, physical light in the world, and then he applies those three things to the person of Jesus. And so, in some ways, he says several very obvious things about light. But what's clever is he then applies them to Jesus in a way that makes clearer, much clearer, the way in which we are to think of who Jesus is, and obviously also what he's done. So, John walks through it, he says, look, light brings life, and so does Jesus. Light overcomes darkness, and so does Jesus. Light reveals things, makes things known, makes things visible, so does Jesus. And as he goes through this chapter, you'll see as we just walk through it, he's saying, yeah, light brings life. Light overcomes darkness. Light makes things visible. And so does Jesus. That's the way John is going to go for us. Just tracking something we already know and applying it to that which we don't. Which is, how do we make sense of Jesus with respect to God? Now, just go through them, really. Light brings life is where he starts. This is the beginning. It's the way the Bible begins and it's the way John begins. In him was life. In verse 4, and that life was the light of men. So it's saying, you cannot have life without light. It's the connection. Light is that which brings life. In fact, if you're going to have anything alive, you have to have light first. I don't know if you've been watching Planet Earth. Um... Over these last few weeks, I mean, certainly that first episode on the racer snakes is just absolutely, I mean, that's everybody's nightmare, I imagine, being chased by these snakes as you're born. So some of you are now never going to watch it, I understand that. But those of you who do, it's really, really good. And uh, a recent episode was on on mountains, was on what life is like up mountains. And uh, there's this great, this really fascinating thing about a a mountain, is in Kenya, I think, in Africa where uh, they're just saying how it's so baking hot during the day that humans would burn in four minutes if we were there, but it's so cold at night that the water all freezes, it goes to minus five. And so you have these flamingos, which I think, even at the best of times, are slightly eccentric animals. Flamingos are kind of weird, aren't they? They sort of sleep standing up and all the kind of odd to stand on one leg. It's very peculiar creatures. Um, But it's so hot during the day that they're sort of up there up and about, sort of making sure they get water on themselves. But at night, it's so cold that their feet freeze in the water that they're in. So they spend the first half hour of the day trying to get their feet out of frozen blocks in this lake that they're standing in. So doing this, it's hilarious, watching them. And then eventually they shake themselves free by the time the light has broken, dawn is, the sun is up, and they finally get enough movement to be able to go off and do this sort of flamingo-like dance, which they then all do. It's all very bizarre. And then there are, alongside the flamingos, in the same area, there are these plants which uh, open their leaves up, as plants normally do, to the sun during the day. And then at nighttime, they close up again when there's no light to make sure they keep their heat in. And then they open up again the next morning. And then that evening, they shut their leaves again. And... The reason why animals and plants do things like that is because life on earth is impossible without light. And actually the light brings heat, but the light also brings the, the photosynthesis of the way that f- plants can produce energy. And so you end up with everything we need for life on earth would be impossible without the sun, without the light that we get from the sun. So by referring to Jesus as the light, John is taking something very obvious, life produces Life is uh, Light produces life. That's the right way around. Light produces life. He's saying, we all know that. But I'm going to apply that to Jesus and say, he's like that. Jesus is the one through whom everything comes into being. If there was not Jesus, you would not be able to live. Just like if there was not light, you wouldn't be able to live. In fact, this is the foundation. This is the first step. You can't have everything else we're going to talk about if you don't have this one first. Because life would disappear. So by referring to Jesus as the light, one of the things John's doing is saying, this is the thing you need in order for there to be any life at all. You need Jesus. That's not a new idea to John. He's actually drawing it from the first few verses of the entire Bible in Genesis 1. Just look at them. You'll be familiar with them probably, but just look at them again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Notice three things about that very familiar introduction. Yeah, in the beginning, I get darkness, light. Notice three things about it. First, light comes through the Word. As the Word comes, let there be light, light comes about in response to the Word. That's the way it works. God does not say, I'm now about to make light, and then go off and do something else to bring it about. That's what happens with other things in Genesis 1. Let's make man, so God made man. Let let the earth do this, so the earth did this. With light, it's not like that. He speaks, and the word alone brings light. That's kind of unique in the story of Genesis 1. God's word actually acts as he says it. It's what you you might call a speech act if you're a linguist. It's something where, in saying it, it happens. I've had the privilege of marrying a whole load of couples. Uh, Again, you understand what I mean, right? Not marrying into lots and lots of different polygamous and all that sort of... Wow, the teaching pastor's polygamous! ah!" That'd be big news. but um, But no, I've had the privilege of standing there and declaring people husband and wife. And when you do, you say words which act. You say, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and as you say it, it becomes true. The Word is not preparation for something else. The Word actually does the action. That's what let there be light is like. God speaks, let there be light, and there is. The Word brings light on its own. So you've got to notice that in Genesis 1, that's what happens. You've got to notice that. Notice also, we have the Trinity in action in that story as well. God created the heavens and the earth through the Word, and the Spirit was hovering over. So you've got the Trinity in there. And the light also comes... First, the light precedes what follows. You have to have light before you have any other life, any other matter, anything else. Light has to come first. And those things are true of Jesus. Jesus is the one. Like light, Jesus is the one through whom everything else gets made. He's the the word that brings light on its own. And he is the one who is required before you're able to have anything else. You have darkness, you have death. If the world was dark now, there'd be no life. There's not much life in Antarctica, and that's why. There's no, no light. Actually, light brings life, and Jesus is the light of the world. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. So the first thing John draws our attention to, is like Jesus is the light, the light of the world. First thing John means by that, I think, is light brings life. Jesus brings life too. Second thing he means by it, light overcomes darkness. And that's really obvious to all of us. We know anybody. You, you, light and darkness is not a fair fight. You have lots of pairs of opposites uh, that you, in Christianity as well, actually, where you're not sure which one of the opposites will prevail, will win. You have love and hate. I don't know who's going to win here. This person loves people. This person hates people. Who's going to prevail in this situation? I don't know. Hate sometimes does defeat love. I'd love to believe it didn't, but sometimes it does. Sometimes people choose fear over hope don't know which one it is light and darkness are not like that light never ever loses in a battle with darkness you don't have the darkness and the light and then the collision who's going to win oh i think it might be darkness today never happens never happens because darkness by definition is just the absence of light light overcomes darkness because of what it is it doesn't have to do anything it doesn't have to be big and strong and mighty and shout at the darkness. Simply by being there, light banishes darkness. I'm reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows at the moment, which has got some fantastic illustrations, uh, which we will not go into today, of the Christian faith towards the end. It's just, I won't spoil the ending, but some magnificent gospel pictures in there. But one of the things, one of the trivial things that happens in it, you have a character who's got a device called a deluminator, which is something that when you press it, all the light in the room gets overcome by darkness. Is this little, little thing, you know, he just presses it and suddenly all the lights go out. And that's like a, like a magic thing. And obviously we know, we read in the story, magic and fiction, yeah, I see that. But we all know that in real life such a device would be totally impossible. You could not have anything where this, we've got darkness that's so powerful it can overpower light. Just a contradiction in terms, isn't it? It doesn't work. There is no such thing as darkness that's big and strong enough. To overcome even the light of a little candle or a match it just doesn't ever work. Darkness, you see, is not a thing. It's the absence of a thing. Light comes in. Light is light is something. Light is a thing. Light is an essence, an entity. Darkness is not. Darkness is just what you have left over when there isn't any light. And spiritual darkness is like that too. Spiritual darkness, evil, sin, is actually not really a thing in itself. It's the absence of a thing. When people say, why did God create evil? Sometimes there's a good answer that actually is, well, in a way, he didn't. Evil isn't really a thing you create at all. Evil is actually the absence of something that he created. That's what it is. I was trying to illustrate this recently. I I was really building up a head of steam, teaching some pastors about this, and talking about how a lot of great theologians in the history of the church have talked about spiritual darkness or evil, not as a thing, but as the absence of a thing. And I was talking about privation of being, and I was quoting Augustine and Boethius and John Scotus Erigena and Thomas Aquinas, and really, I was loving it. You know, here we go, yeah, guys, here we go. See, evil, and what I did was I said to illustrate it for him, I said, and so it's like evil is like a hole in a sock, right? In, according to these great thinkers, evil is like a hole in a sock. It doesn't have existence of its own, but by being there when it shouldn't be, by effectively there being an absence of sock when there should be sock holes in the sock become a problem. So a hole in the sock is bad, but it's, the hole itself doesn't have any existence of its own. It's simply a deficiency in the sock. Right? So I thought that was a good illustration. I was feeling pleased with it, and others have used it before me. And one of the pastors puts his hand up and says, but if there wasn't, a, it was quite serious, if there wasn't a hole in the sock, where would you put your foot in? And I suddenly thought, no, 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 no. A second hole in the sock. Um, Did you all know that that's... And I actually had to poll the class. I was like, I'm just losing all competencies. So now I'm thinking I lack clarity in all my teaching. I'm like, no, no, a second hole in the sock. The first, because I think he thought I meant, like, no, you've got like a solid piece of material with no hole. And I was like, no, no, no. We'll accept that there should be one hole in the sock, but maybe not a second or a third. I mean one in the heel or in the toe. Oh, yeah, fine, that's what I... Anyway, so it was a very weird experience. But my sister used to do the same thing. She used to get... um, Cheese, like Swiss cheese, Emmental. She used to love it, and she would tell us when she was about, I don't know, three or four, "I really love eating the holes." That's what she used to do. It's quite sweet, isn't it? Now I was eight, and I'm sure you'll all find this very hard to believe, but I was a bit of a Pedantic so-and-so when I was eight. Um, and I was just in there going, actually, you can't eat holes, holes aren't there, they're not really there to be eaten, all this sort of stuff. And she was just like, well, I like the holes, and became a source of family conflict, as these things do. But the point is, actually, the hole in the cheese, the hole in the sock doesn't exist. Does it? It's not a thing. It's the absence of a thing. Darkness, evil, is in many ways like that. It is just simply the absence of something that should be there. And the reason that matters is because that means that when someone who is light steps into a place where there is darkness, there is no contest here. There's no, oh, the darkness is rising up and see if it might defeat the light. And if we get enough darkness points and the light is small enough, we might, not have, a, we might have the darkness might win. That never happens. Impossible. Light, just by being there, banishes darkness. I watched um, the movie Selma recently about the Civil Rights Movement and the March on Selma in 1965. And one of the things that struck me in it was Dr. King's insistence that what was taking place was a lot of oppression was happening in the dark where people couldn't see it. And what he was trying to do with his marches is to get that stuff done in the dark but done it in the light so everyone could see. And the conviction that drove what he was doing, even though he knew he was going to get beaten up and many people were, they knew once we do this in the light, we will never go back. No one will ever be able to act like we were still back in the darkness again. Because once it's been seen, once it's been brought into the light, there is no hope for people to carry on living in darkness. And of course, that is the, at the heart of what he tried to do and of what he successfully managed to do. And that, in a way, John is saying, that's what happens in Jesus. That the light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Well, of course it can't. Darkness never overcomes light. What happens is darkness flees and now that the light has come, now that Jesus has stepped into the world and been who he is, there is no scope for anybody to say, oh, I'm going to carry on living in this little bubble of darkness over here. There is no turning back. Light has come. We cannot carry on acting as if Jesus was not here. He has, by being himself, brought light into dark places and made it impossible for us to go back to a world of simply darkness. So when John says the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, he's saying there is no turning back now, friends. You can't go back to the dark world, even if you wanted to. And that's a good message for Dark times, for turbulent times, like we're in at the moment and have been in the last few weeks in the Western world. Turbulent times, confusing times. Seeing events on the world stage, you think, I never thought I'd live to see this. But we don't at that point. I love how Carl Henry puts it, he's American theologian. He says, the early church never said, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. That's a good way of looking at it. The true light which enlightens everyone has come into the world. And you can't go back. So light brings life, and light overcomes darkness. And then finally, light makes visible things that you couldn't see before. You may have had this experience on a holiday. You, um, you think you're looking forward to going on a holiday, and it's somewhere pretty, beautiful, whatever it might be. And you're looking forward to going, but you arrive, because of your, like, your flight, say it's abroad maybe, and you're, you're, you're flying, and you arrive at night. And you think, this is supposed to be really beautiful, but it kind of looks exactly the same as darkness looks in London. So I don't really know why I came, you know, you're just sort of looking out the window, oh, this is... and think, oh, then you get into your, your room or the house where you're staying or whatever, and it's just as dark as it was in South London, and you think, what did I come here for? And then the next morning, the curtains open, and suddenly the vista, the view, the beauty of where you are suddenly hits you, and you think, well, this was here last night, it's just, I couldn't see it because there was no light, but it's made visible what was already there. It hasn't made something freshly true, it's just made me able to see what was already true. John's saying, Jesus does that, and Jesus does that for God. Jesus comes, and as he embodies God, he presents us with a a picture, not just a picture, but a physical person, flesh. The word became flesh. We're able to see and touch and handle and go, oh, that's what God has always been like, even though I wasn't able to see him. He's always been there. The beauty, the vista of the glory and majesty of God has always been there. The love of God. God has always been the kind of God who cries at funerals and makes wine at weddings. It's just until now I haven't been able to see him. And now I see you, I can. And I realize that's what he's like. Jesus reveals God. When John says in in chapter 1 verse 18, No one has ever seen God as in God the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John is saying Jesus has made visible that which until now was invisible, the person of God, the Father. And I said at the start, you may well find the Trinity very confusing, and it is. But John 1 provides us with not just one, but two very powerful images to make, help make sense of it. The relationship between Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father. He's described, Jesus is described as the, the light, that's what we've been looking at, and also as the Word of God. So we have light and word, or if you like, what you can see and what you can hear, deliberately using both of those senses. And John is saying, put together, that's what Jesus is. He's not just the word. Israel had the word of God, they knew what God said. Jesus is the word and the light. So, and he's in physical form in front of you. So you have both what God it looks like and what God sounds like have come together in one person that we can look at and have such a fair representation of what God is like. It is as if we are actually looking at God himself because this is such a perfect image of the invisible God. That's what Jesus is to Christians. That's who he is. Now, to try and illustrate the point, but I have to be careful here because if you take this analogy too seriously, it could be heretical. So I just add that little user warning at the start. Um, but when I first got married and I wanted to keep in touch with my wife if I was out of the country or she was out of the country, you have two options. You can look at a picture, which doesn't really, doesn't really do very much. For, you know, you're looking at a picture of your wife like, well, that doesn't feel like she's here. Or you can talk to her on the phone. Right, so you, just I got married in 2004. Those are my options, right? I've got light, image, or I've got word. I can hear her, or I can see her, but I can't do both. And then somebody invented Skype. Oh, no one has ever seen Rachel. The only Skype who is at Rachel's side, Skype has made her known. And suddenly, look, light and word come together at the same time, and I'm able to interact with an image of Rachel that is so vivid and real, it's as if I'm interacting with the real Rachel. Well, actually, I'm not. So if I was to leave the room and someone said, hey, what have you just been doing? I'd say, oh, well, I've just been talking to Rachel. The person could, again, if they were like the eight-year-old me, go, actually, you haven't been talking to Rachel, you've been talking to a series of digital pixels, and I and go on and explain what's actually happening. But the point is, it feels so, it's so real, that it, the word and the light coming together, if you like, the visual and the audio coming together in the same thing, it is such a powerful, such a replica, such a powerful image of who she is, that even though I can't physically see her, it's as if I can, because she's right there. In a sense... Heretical warnings to the side, but in a sense, that's what Jesus does for God. Jesus stands in front of us, and as we look at him, we are able not just to hear, but to see what God is like in him. He shines and he speaks. He is the word and the lights. He is the light of the world. He brings life. He overcomes darkness. And he makes visible that which is invisible. In his case, of course, God the Father. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. On the first day of everything, it was dark. And the Spirit of God was hovering, but it was dark. And God said, lights. And his powerful word, on its own, brings dazzling light and life to everything. And then on Sunday morning in AD 30 or thereabouts, it is dark. People are crying. People are heartbroken. The sun has not risen. Jerusalem is dark. And God says, lights. And his powerful word steps out of the tomb and brings dazzling lights and life to the world such that we can never go back. He is the light of the world.